Tonight, straight from the source, breaking news as Republican hardliner Matt Gates has now made good on his threat to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his job, filing the papers tonight to at least try to for the first time in more than a century. Plus, new reporting tonight why a seething Donald Trump chose to show up in court today to face the judge who found him liable for fraud and the attorney general who brought that case against him, raging at both of them on day one of his trial. And a nine-year-old tonight who had vanished on a camping trip has just been found alive after 400 rescue workers were out looking for her. A suspect is now in custody and we have the latest. I'm Caitlin Collins and this is The Source. Tonight, a showdown is now underway on Capitol Hill over whether House Speaker Kevin McCarthy can keep his job. A member of his own conference, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, one of the right's most defiant hardliners and certainly one of McCarthy's biggest detractors, has just followed through on his threat to move to remove Kevin McCarthy from the House Speakership. Well, he doesn't have my support anymore, and he doesn't have the support of a requisite number of Republicans to continue as the Republican Speaker. Now, he may continue as the House Speaker, and he may continue as a Speaker of the Democrats and some sort of uniparty coalition, but he is not going to be a Speaker in power as a consequence of Republican votes. McCarthy responding with these three words to that, quote, bring it on. Gates replying with two of his own, just did. McCarthy, of course, could need Democrats to save him, but right now they are saying almost to a T that they are going to wait to hear from Democratic leaders to take a position before they decide how they will vote. And with this breaking news, I am joined now by Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee on Capitol Hill. Congressman, given this breaking news, are you going to vote to oust Kevin McCarthy from his job? Well, really, I see it as as two things. Um, One, do I vote against my friend Kevin McCarthy, or do I... I go with my conscience. That's kind of where I'm at, and I'm currently praying about it. But I, I would, if it was right now, I would, I would vote to, um, to oust him. Yes. Okay. So if the vote was held right now, and of course it will have to be held in the next two days, do you foresee that changing, or are you a yes vote? Do you believe over the next two days to oust Kevin McCarthy? I don't really think I will, other than the phone calls that I'll get right after they see this this broadcast. Um, I, I suspect that, you know, the pressure will be put on us. But, you know, it's been pretty clear with me, ma'am, all along. As you know, I've, I've talked about the fiscal responsibility, really have two jobs here. It's one is 12 appropriations um, and, and passing a budget. And we've not done that. We've not done that yeah. in 30, 30 years. And we just keep abdicating our duty. We, we said, oh, we're going to do a 45-day one now. And that's, that's great. But that's not what I signed up for. I signed up to do my job, and my job is to pass a budget. And that's not what we're doing. We talked about that last time you were here. Are there 218 votes to oust McCarthy, do you believe? I don't know. I don't know if there's a a half a dozen, but there's... But it's what I believe. I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not really a barometer checker. I don't really care about all that. I'm just going to do what's right for me and the people of of the district that I represent. And that seems to be the will of them. And it's it's obviously my will. I'm just disgusted about a system where we're supposed to be in meetings and and here it is we got 45 days and what are we doing we had a nice dinner tonight we started work at six o'clock and i'll guarantee you the people that good hard-working people of tennessee and most of the people that are watching this democrats and republicans they're going to be up tomorrow morning at 5 30 or six o'clock working you got single moms doing two jobs teachers yeah. going to school Congressman- doctors lawyers firemen everybody is and yet congress is not on that note 
The question, of course, is if he's ousted, who would replace Kevin McCarthy? Are there any names being floated that you've heard? <clears throat> well, um, I'm joined off to my side here by Chip Roy. He'd be a wise choice, but I'm sure now he's scared that I've said his name. He's probably going to look under his car before he starts it as he walks out of here. But and no, did he say if he's going to vote to oust McCarthy? No, ma'am. No, he has. And I haven't asked anybody, honestly. I don't, I'm not polling people. I'm just going to do what's right for me. I think that's part of the problem with this town. We look to see what's going to pass instead of doing what our conscience tells mm -hmm. us to do. That's why we're $33 trillion in debt, honestly. I mean, we, we, we pass these monstrosity omnibus bills, and then we check down to see, oh, there's, there's, my, there's the stuff I need, or there's the lobbyist I need degrees, and then we vote for the bill, and then there's you know, over 2,000 pages of, of Nancy Pelosi, we got to pass it until we know what's in it kind of stuff. And, and here we are. We, we said we were going to be different, and we're not. Yeah. All right, Congressman Tim Burchett, you just joined us at the last minute on this breaking news, so appreciate your time tonight. You are a yes to oust Kevin McCarthy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, and I'm so glad they found that little girl. We all are, and certainly her family is as well. Thank you for that. Yes, ma'am. Of course, the question tonight becomes, if enough Republicans do move to oust McCarthy, as the congressman just said there, he's a yes, will Democrats potentially cut a deal to save him? Well, let's ask one. We've got Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida here with us. Congressman, would you vote personally to, to save Kevin McCarthy's job? Well, thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for having me on. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to wait till Hakeem Jeffries uh, weighs in. Uh, as Hakeem said tonight, people are tired of the partisanship, the gamesmanship, the brinksmanship uh, that this has brought in the two in the two in the 118th Congress. All we've seen is this sort of chaos. We saw chaos during the debt ceiling when they wanted to wreck the economy, the chaos caucus. We saw this when it came to uh, impeachment last week in the impeachment hearing. Uh, trying to impeach a president for something his son did. And then we just saw just a couple of days ago when they almost closed down the government, hurting our military and helping our adversaries. So this is just more chaos. But look, I'm going to wait to hear uh, from Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem's done a great job leading uh, the Democratic House caucus through this, all of this chaos, quite frankly. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to wait to hear what he has to say. I mean, that is what we are hearing from Democrats. They want to wait to have leadership weigh in. Kind of would be a remarkable situation, though, if Democrats are voting to save Kevin McCarthy's job. If that happens, what do you want to get from McCarthy in exchange for your vote? Is it on Ukraine funding? Is there anything else that assurances you would want in order to cast a vote for McCarthy? Well, look, I'm not going to negotiate with the speaker, obviously, uh, through the TV. I'll, I'll let my, my leadership do that. But, but obviously, look... You know, there are priorities for the American people. We've been up here putting people over politics uh, since January. Uh, and so, look, yeah, there, this is about making sure that we're doing everything we can uh, for, for the American people. It's about, you know, funding our military. It's about making sure that our military can even have the leaders that they need to fill positions as we see Republicans blocking that uh, in, in the Senate. It's about helping the American people, uh, you know, put food on the table. You know, it's about making sure there are good paying jobs. And so at, at the end of the day, Democrats have an agenda. Uh, and, you know, I have faith in Hakeem Jeffries uh, to negotiate that. But at the end of the day, this is obviously going to be fascinating. And you haven't you heard know, this from, the, this, from Hakeem Jeffries yet. Is that right? Uh, we have a caucus meeting in the morning, so I imagine okay. we'll hear from him then. But but look, this is going to be fascinating, you know, one way or another, because at the end of the day, whether it, it passes or fails, uh, in the next couple of days. And by the way, it'll be a motion to table as I imagine what we'll be voting on. We won't right. be voting on the actual motion to vacate. Uh, but, you know, after that, Matt may make this motion over and over again. Republicans can then start denying the rule, which means no bill can come up 
so this this is not over. This is going to be chaos now, um, you know, continued. And by the way, in the event yeah. Kevin uh, Kevin doesn't have the votes and the motion to vacate eventually succeeds, you know, then it, it could be weeks and weeks before we have a speaker as we approach again another shutdown. So more chaos. Uh, from the Republicans in the 118th Congress. Yeah, it seems to be the MO on Capitol Hill these days. Uh, Congressman, after you have that meeting in the morning, please let us know what the leadership tells you. And thank you for joining tonight. Thank you. And for more perspective on this, let's go to Republican governor, the former governor of Maryland, the national co-chair of the No Labels. Larry Hogan is here with us. I mean, we had a lot of things that we wanted to talk to you about, but given this breaking news, this is a party that you've been a member of for a long time. What do you make of what's happening on Capitol Hill? Well, I think, uh, it, you know, just it's showing that we're, we're it's nothing but divisiveness and dysfunction in Washington. And I think the average person is is just kind of disgusted by it. And I think Matt Gates is a, a poster child for everything that's wrong with Washington and, and why they have a 15 percent approval rating for Congress. And you know, I don't think the average person is really following the, the palace intrigue as much as we are about who's going to be the speaker. But they are pretty frustrated that we're not talking about the economy, that we're, we're not actually coming together to get things done. And I think, you know, it's it's uh, instead of focusing on things like the economy, which the Republicans should be doing, because polls show where voters uh, approve of Republicans on the economy by 20 points over Democrats. We're not talking about that. We're we're talking about, you know, we're following Trump trials and fights over speakership. Yeah, it seems to raise the question of can Republicans govern? I mean, they have the House majority on Capitol Hill, and this is what it looks like tonight. Well, it's not helping the campaign, that's for sure, because it looks uh, like we're dysfunctional. And, and frankly, I think the Democrats are enjoying you know, watching that happen. So it's going to it's going to be interesting to see. I don't think there's enough Republican votes to re, to remove the speaker, but it's going to make us look like we can't leave. Well, one of the fights on Capitol Hill is over Ukraine funding. And I know that this is something that you've stood up. You've supported Ukraine. When you were governor, you sent them a multi-million dollar package. Kevin McCarthy stripped that Ukraine funding from what they passed on Saturday to keep the government funded. I mean, what kind of message does that send to Kiev and to, to Moscow? Well, it sends a terrible message. And I think it says not just to Kiev and Moscow, it sends a message to to all of our enemies that, you know, I, they no longer fear us and our allies that we're no longer going to, you know, you know, support them. And it's it's not, you know, look, if even if you don't care about standing up for freedom and democracy or supporting our allies, it's it's in America's best interest to make sure that, uh, you know, we you give them everything they can, that we can give them to get this war done. You don't want to open check. But this these folks, these Republicans haven't spent much time at the Reagan Library. I can tell you that they don't they don't know about the importance of peace through strength. And uh, I think uh, I think this is a big mistake of this big fight over not funding Ukraine. I think a number of the Republicans on the debate stage agreed with that. Uh, but some of these folks in Congress just don't seem to understand the importance of it. Yeah, that number is growing uh, of those who don't support it on Capitol Hill, and at least in the House. You mentioned the other aspect of what we've been covering today, which was tr Donald Trump here in court for his day one of his civil trial, which he didn't actually have to be there. But what, is, what does it say to you as someone who has asked many times if you were going to run for president, when you see the Republican frontrunner there in court instead of out on the campaign trail? Well, I think it's a, a huge distraction and it's sucking all the oxygen out of the room. So I'm proud that we have uh, a lot of great Republican candidates are up on that debate stage, getting, but they're getting no traction because no one's, no one's paying attention. And instead of focusing in on the issues and talking about how we're going to fix the economy and what we're going to do about crime in our cities and, and debating about uh, funding for Ukraine, we're spending time watching Donald Trump's trials. And you talk about the Donald Trump trial. Well, which one? I mean, it's every day. It's a different thing. And all throughout the primaries, that's that's going to be it's going to be court TV instead of 
why can we do a better job of leading? Well, and it has clearly hit a nerve for him. I mean, if you listen to him today, he was so angry as he came out. It used to be in real estate, you had a firm before you became governor. Why do you think it is hitting such a nerve with Trump? Well, I think it's it's potentially going to cost him real money. I mean, it's uh, going to hurt his business and he, he may, you know, may, may lose $250 million. But I think I think it's part of it is theater. I mean, it did strike a nerve, but he went, he didn't have to be there. He went there because it's this is part of his attention to attack the judge, attack the prosecutor. He's fundraising he, he, off of he's it. He's fundraising off of it and he wanted to make a big show. It's kind of a typical the same pattern that we see from Trump all of the time. Is it appropriate for him to be fundraising off of this? No, it's not. Room? And it's not appropriate, but it's pretty typical. You toyed with the idea of running. You are not running for the Republican nomination. You have left open the door to, to run as a third party ticket. When you see something like that today, do you get closer to that? Well, you know, look, I think about 70 percent of the people in America do not want Donald Trump or Joe Biden to be president. And, uh, you know, we're at a strange place where we've never been in this country where, uh, you know, 44 percent of the people are independent. Sixty eight percent say they'd like another alternative. But I don't know if it makes sense or not. It's not something I'm pursuing. Um, I, I got involved in this no labels group because it's all about bipartisanship and working together and finding common ground and, and, and compromise to get things done. And that's what I've been all about for eight years as governor. But this, um, you know, you saw the uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. came out. He's at 19 percent in, in the polls as an independent. Imagine if we had a sane independent candidate, how much you could be pulling. Say yes or no. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, I think it's too early to decide. My hope is still that, that we can possibly nominate someone other than Trump. And I'm hoping that, frankly, Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee. I mean, he, they're the two weakest candidates with the two lowest approval rating in history. And it's not what America wants. But it sure seems like Trump's going to be the nominee if the election was tomorrow. It seems like it would be. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden is the one that's going to enable him because he's the weakest candidate to run against him. So no yes or no? No yes or no. It's a, I haven't ruled it out, but When's it's not something I'm pursuing. When are you going to decide, by? I think we're going to wait and see after Super Tuesday what happens okay. with these two candidates. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, thank you for being here on set with us tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Coming up, we have brand new reporting about what the governor was just referencing there. Why Donald Trump showed up to his civil fraud trial in New York today. Plus, Cassidy Hutchinson is here. The former Trump White House aide who famously testified before the January 6th Congressional Committee her reaction to the scathing new remarks about her former boss from another one of his former employees, Chief of Staff John Kelly, who is now saying, quote, God help us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, I have new reporting on why Donald Trump decided to show up here in New York for his day in court in his civil case, a notable move given he did not actually have to be here for that. Trump's fury over a trial that cuts at the heart of his image was obvious. Several sources tell me that Trump's choice to show up was as personal as it was political. Sources say that Trump has been venting for days after the Manhattan Supreme Court judge that he was before today, Judge Engeron, found him liable for fraud and told him that he was living in a, quote, fantasy world when it came to the value of his properties, or at least what they said the value of those properties was. 
These allegations that Trump consistently inflated his net worth by billions of dollars strikes right at the heart of what Trump values the most, his business and his brand. One insider tells me, quote, they are hitting him where it hurts. They pointed to the multiple occasions today when the former president attacked the judge and the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who filed this lawsuit and stood just steps away from them. We have a rogue judge. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show. Just so you know, my financial statements are phenomenal. This is a disgrace. And you're to go after this attorney general. This is a judge that should be disbarred. That some people say could be charged criminally for what he's doing. Mr. Trump, why do you want to be here in person today? Because I want to watch this witch hunt myself. Of course, as you hear those repeated attacks today, remember that comes after he was warned in a separate criminal case that is not related to this one, not to lash out at court personnel. But sources say that Trump has told those closest to him he doesn't care if he's punished for those attacks or even potentially given a gag order, a limited one in another case, because he believes it will benefit him politically. Joining me now to break down everything we saw happen today, or at least try to, David Kelly, a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Tamadaya Agongo-Williams, former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee. David, I mean, when you hear Trump's attorney arguing in court today about these assets, they said, you know, it's not fraud, it's real estate, making that defense essentially of why the numbers were not accurate. How does the judge take that, do you think? Well, I think what the judge tries to figure is puts himself in what that milieu is, which is there is a lot of subjectivity. There's a lot of different interests and they're floating different numbers. And as the Trump camp says, there's a lot going on where, you know, there's a lot of fluff there and that's part of the game. But what the judge has said is that even given that this is really in a completely different universe, a different orbit than even in that. When you're talking about inflating everything from 17 to 35%. It just doesn't even land in the area where Trump's camp would like you to believe it is. And they were saying something was 11,000 square feet that actually was closer to to 3,000 square feet. I mean, those are hard numbers. But Tim, I mean, we've already seen the judge issue this ruling last week, finding Trump liable for this. I mean, that decision has already been, that die has already been cast. Where do they go from here? I mean, why are his attorneys still trying to argue it's not fraud? I think, one, they don't really have any, any other arguments. I mean, what the judge has done is rule on partial issues. The judge has basically looked at those financial statements that David is talking about and said those things are false. There are other issues that are going to be before the judge about other counts that the attorney general is bringing against the former president. So it's not all done. I mean, his, his lawyers have to go out there and there's a defense to be put forward. And there's a big question I think might matter the most to the former president, which is how much money, if the attorney general is fully successful, is she going to be taking from him? And the judge is still going to decide that. Yeah. And one thing, of course, that has infuriated Trump and was notable about why and how he was there today is the property value of Mar-a-Lago itself. I mean, Trump is claiming and his attorneys were actually claiming this in court today that it could be worth over a billion dollars if they sold it. And a appraiser in Palm Beach, who the judge cited in his ruling, put it in this 18 to 28 million dollar range. I mean, when you look at that and you hear that argument in court today, how much of that has to do with an appeal to the judge or an appeal to your client? I think a lot of what we're seeing today in the theatrics involved in Trump being there hasn't anything to do with the judge and appeasing the judge. I mean, I think they've already feel like they've lost the battle with the judge. I think in some measure, Trump is using this as a platform um, to promote the notion that these cases, not just this one, but all the other cases are really about election interference. Um, And it also kind of feeds into his political 
campaign, which is I'm the victim. Um, so it's really using this as a, as a campaign vehicle because <clears throat> I don't, as you say, I don't think there's really a whole lot they have to defend the case. And so a lot of this noise doesn't really, you know, and the judge came out with a very detailed ru- ruling. So a lot of this has nothing to do with any of that. And you have to kind of cut through the, the noise and figure out what exactly is going on here. Is there any risk to Trump attacking the judge here? I mean, he was late going into the courtroom today because he was going off on the judge and the attorney general. Are there consequences he could face for that? I think the first risk he has is that the one person that matters in the courtroom and what they think is going to be that judge. That's the judge is going to decide his financial future. So if there's one person he doesn't want to get on the wrong side of, it's that judge. I think that's the first issue right there. Second, if these public comments he's making start spilling over into the realm of threats or something else that's even close to threat, he's then going to have to answer to his, the judges in his criminal cases. We have Judge Chutkin, who has warned him repeatedly about these kind of public inflammatory statements. He has two other criminal cases where he is out uh, on pretrial release. So I think with those three cases, if these inflammatory statements continue, I think you're not, I would not be surprised to see prosecutors raise those to those judges. And again, if he raises other issues as far as inflammatory statements, all of these will be read together by a judge. And those prosecutors will point to statements he's made about January 6th, statements he's made in this Manastra case, statements he's made about the documents case, and all those together are going to paint a damning picture that down the road, judges will use against him. What do you think? I agree with that. But I think what he's doing is really pressing the First Amendment envelope and pressing the envelope of where he can go, as you say, in these other cases to make statements that's going to push a judge to issue a gag order. And I think in, in some measure, if he gets a gag order, that even helps him more because he then it just says he's more election interference. That's what he it, thinks. It, that's what he thinks. And if he doesn't get the gag order, he still gets to get out there and makes a statement on oh, the victim. Um, and this is all about election interference, which is what his campaign really is. I mean, that's the that's what he's really promoting at the time. Yeah. David Kelly, Timodayo, Ganga-Williams, thank you both for bringing that legal expertise. We're going to need it a lot, apparently, coming up, so thank you. Also coming up here on The Source, Cassidy Hutchinson here in studio tonight as Trump's former chief of staff has given his strongest rebuke of the ex-president yet. Exclusive new reporting tonight from CNN's Jake Tapper, the most scathing rebuke yet that we have seen from John Kelly. Of course, Trump's longest serving chief of staff who described Donald Trump is this. and I'm quoting John Kelly now, a person that thinks those who defend their country in uniform or are shot down or seriously wounded in combat or spend years being tortured as POWs are all suckers because there is nothing in it for them. A person who is not truthful regarding his position on the protection of unborn life, on women, on minorities, on evangelical Christians, on Jews and on working men and women. A person that has no idea what America stands for and no idea what America is all about. A person that has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our constitution, and the rule of law. There is nothing more that can be said. God help us. That statement from John Kelly coming just days after the former Trump White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, called Trump the, quote, most grave threat to American democracy. Her no memoir, Enough, delves into the why. Of course, she saw it all up close. And she joins me now. What do you make when you hear, Cassidy, and thank you for being here, when you hear what John Kelly, I mean, he was chief of staff before you were there, but when you hear him coming out, the most scathing criticism we've heard him of Trump, and he's criticized Trump, Mm -hmm. what do you make of what that is? 
Well, the first thing I'd say to that, Caitlin, is when you have people like General Kelly, who are close to the former president in the inner circle, coming out with statements as scathing as the one that he came out with today. And I touched on that, uh, the Atlantic story in my book as well, because I was on the plane with the former president when, uh, when that story came out. And you know, the president was not happy about it. But when you have people that are in as part of his former circle, we need to believe them. It's not just me. It's not just General Kelly. But I will say with General Kelly, he's a man that has served his country in uniform, just like General Milley or Secretary Esper. Donald Trump has no bounds. He does not have any limitations to who he is going to criticize. And we need to listen to the people, especially men like John Kelly, when they come out and say how dangerous he is. Yeah, you were. That was a fascinating passage in here because you were on the plane when word that the story was breaking and Mark Meadows, your boss, was panicking over that. And you say that when you went to Trump and you were speaking about what's at the heart of this, which is that he canceled a visit to a cemetery where American soldiers are buried because it was windy and he didn't want his hair to get messed up. Um, and you said that he was so upset about the story. You said it was a side of the president that most Americans never have the opportunity to see, sympathetic, concerned, and apprehensive. It's a side that the media doesn't see or doesn't report, that he keeps well disguised, which you said you feared was because he didn't want to appear weak. But it's a side of him that exists. What do you make of what your experience was then and him denying that this happened and someone like John Kelly, who was there with him, saying tonight, actually, that is true. It did happen. He did say those comments. Well, two things on that, Caitlin. That night, very specific and jarring memory for me, too, because on one hand, I did feel bad for him, for the former president, for Mr. Trump, because I, at the time, felt that, you know, maybe there is some nuggets of untruth in it things that aren't true in this. And he was sort of desperate to get something on the record. He had Bobby Angle, his former lead Secret Service detail, and Tony Ornato looking through the emails, trying to find some scrap of any communication that they had to say that with that story would be false. But the president was beside himself. And I like looking back now with the hindsight that I have, especially in conjunction with General Kelly's statement today, again, it just goes it goes without saying that he is a man that is overly consumed with his ego and how he appears to be in the public eye. He doesn't want to look weak, but he's also not a man of the people as he claims to be. When you look at that and someone like John Kelly, you talked about having respect for, for the armed services. When you hear what General Milley said on Friday, and I know obviously General Milley was there when you were there, he called Trump a wannabe dictator. Do you agree that Trump is a wannabe dictator? You know, I will leave it to the military experts to define whether he is a wannabe dictator. But what I will say is Donald Trump has no bounds. He has no respect for our Constitution. He has no respect for institutions. We saw that on January 6th. We saw that throughout his, it, throughout his presidency. And we, we've seen that since he left the Oval Office, the way that he's conducted himself and the way that he has presented a potential second-term plan. Um, you know, God forbid we get to that point. But he's not somebody that respects our rule of law. And respecting our rule of law is the most fundamental thing that you need to respect to run for president. If he got a second term and someone gets an offer to go work in the White House, obviously those are, those are big jobs that anyone would jump at. Uh, many people have, obviously. What would you say to people who may consider working for him? Yeah, that's tricky because on one hand, I... I would hope that there would be people that had that 
that took into account ethics and morals and that would go work in the executive branch to serve the country. But on the other hand, I think I'd be doing a disservice to those people by not warning them of the dangers. And, you know, I, I feel I'm also sitting here sort of hypothesizing our, a doomsday scenario, in my opinion, which would be that he is the Republican nominee and could potentially beat President Biden. I think that every American right now has an obligation to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because one of the things that scares me the most about a second Trump term is who would be surrounding him. We saw who was surrounding him at the end of the first term. And it, you know, I, I, I don't have a reason to believe that there would be better people around him than that. Yeah. What drove you to, to go and work for him? I mean, you, you just you write about how your experience before, you know, when you went in there, you adored him. You certainly liked him. And what your experience is now when you're reflecting on that. Yeah, as part of the reason I wanted to write the book, too, because it's, it was not a linear journey. And I, I've, looking back now, and I, I tried to write the book in real time as I experienced the events in real time intentionally because I wanted the readers to understand that it, there were people on the inside. Now, people can determine whether I'm a bad or good. You know, I'm, I'm not, I try not to assign adjectives to anybody. But I think it's important for readers to understand that not everybody was there just to execute Donald J. Trump's agenda. People were there to serve the administration, to serve the country. And that's what drew me to public service in the first place. And I had a phenomenal opportunity to serve in the Trump administration. And I am, and what I was, and I am a Republican. But along the way, there's this dissonance that happened in me where the I, I began to slowly recognize that the MAGA, the Trump Republican agenda, is so far gone from what the original, what has been the Republican agenda. So in writing this book, I, I do my best to explain my journey as somebody who was on the inside, who was privy yeah. to a lot of information, and how I got to this point today. And you worked for Mark Meadows. And I think you know, we talk about senior officials that we hear from all the time, or former Trump officials who are speaking out about him. We never hear from Mark Meadows except for when he's testifying. I mean, what do you think is going on with him? You know, it's hard to say, Caitlin. I, uh, and it's difficult to speculate because he has been so quiet. Um, you know, the what I will say about Mark is he could follow in the footsteps of his predecessors, specifically in the, pertinent to our conversation, General Kelly. Mark has had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing. And what I define as the right thing, which is to come forward with the information that you know. And perhaps he has. In some instances, maybe he has worked with Jack Smith a little bit. Doesn't look like that in Georgia. But Mark Meadows swore an oath to defend and protect the United States of America, not to protect Donald John Trump. And, you know, I, I hope that Mark has that hindsight, especially as we enter this next election year, because Donald Trump poses a grave danger to our institutions. He's disputed some of what you said. I know you responded to, to that last week and you said, well, I have testified about my experience. He should testify about his, if that's it. If he testified against Donald Trump, how damaging do you think it would be for the former president? How much does he know? If he testifies honestly, I, I think if Mark were to testify honestly, which I would assume that he would, and he does have great legal counsel, and it appears that he's listened to them, although I'm taking bits and pieces of news reports, um, you know, it's difficult to speculate on this on a 
on a bigger level, but I would I would think that Mark Mark was in the room way more than I was, and Mark knows way more than I do. Whether the information I have was incriminating in any form, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's to be told. Yeah. But if the Justice Department follows the leads, you know, all roads lead back to Mark Meadows, and I would hope that Mark would go in and honor his oath because this is bigger than Donald Trump. This is bigger than the moment we're in. He needs to protect and defend the United States. All roads lead back to Mark Meadows. Cassidy, you're going to stick around with us. We're going to be back in just a moment with Alyssa Farrah Griffin, who, of course, you as very intertwined in your experience. We have more up next on the breaking news. We'll speak to Cassidy and Alyssa about that as we are now learning about what McCarthy is going to be doing, spending the next 48 hours fighting for his job. Congressman Matt Gates filing paperwork tonight to set a new vote for speaker in motion. Will Democrats help save his job? And if not McCarthy, which Republican would lead the conference? That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I'm back now with more on our breaking news tonight, as Kevin McCarthy's job as House Speaker is now in serious jeopardy after Republican Congressman Matt Gates triggered a vote to oust him from power just a few moments ago. Cassidy Hutchinson is back here with me, along with former Trump White House Communications Director Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Both of you have worked on the Hill, so you're kind of the perfect people to, to talk about this with. But you write in your book, Cassidy, about the relationship between Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates. Clearly, neither one of them are big fans of one another. I mean, what do you make of how all of this potentially ends? You know, I would I would love to say that I didn't see this coming, but yeah, I, it's been a long time coming. I mean, Kevin's been the natural. Kevin was the natural pick for speaker for a long time. They Matt and Kevin clearly have a deep rooted dislike of each other. Um, it's not surprising, although I will say it's disappointing that Matt is putting the needs of Americans below his own ego. There are shocking images coming out of Capitol Hill tonight where he is completely swarmed by photographers, and that's exactly what Matt wants out of this. Matt doesn't want to lead an effective government. If he did, then he'd be working to ha- on how to avert another government shutdown in 44 days. This is Matt's moment in the spotlight, and that's not what these institutions are for. These institutions are meant to survive, and we need to elect people who take their oaths seriously. And Alyssa, you also worked for Mark Meadows. I mean, this was the House Freedom Caucus at the time who talked about being fiscally responsible on the Hill. You heard from Tim Burchett, who says that for him, this is a a policy issue, that he's tired of governing the way that they are, and he's a yes to Alice McCarthy. You know, and it may be for Tim Burchett, but the reality is this, um, the number is 218 that you have to reach. I'm not sure that there's anyone other than Kevin McCarthy who could maybe get that other than maybe Steve Scalise. And he's going to run into exactly, as Cassidy said, the same issue in about 45 days when this government funding bill runs out. I think it's deeply unserious. Listen, I think 
McCarthy and Matt Gates have had deep-seated dislike for one another. I think that is genuine, genuinely what's driving this. There are some more common-sense, pragmatic conservatives who genuinely want to go through the full appropriations process. A legitimate thing to do, but not at the risk of shutting down the government, you know, not get military members their benefits, not funding CBP and Border Patrol. It, it, and it ends up contradicting Republicans' own positions, what they're trying to do here. Yeah, and Cassie, and you worked with McCarthy so closely when you were in the White House. You know, you write in your book about how and you testified that he called you on January 6th to, to get a message that Trump should not come to the Capitol. What's your sense of how he's handling this tonight? I mean, obviously, it was a long time coming. But how do you think he's handling the fact that he might have to get Democrats to save his job? You know, I, I wouldn't think that it would be the worst thing for this Congress if he did get some Democrats on his side. But look, Caitlin, it, Kevin sort of burned bridges on both sides. He's burned bridges with Republicans, as we've seen since he became Speaker. And Democrats also don't trust him. So, you know, is there an alternative to Kevin McCarthy? I don't know. I think that there are several very pragmatic members of Congress, but that just wouldn't have a chance at winning the speakership because they don't either have the name recognition or they're not going to get that far right flank that Kevin McCarthy has tried to appease at points, but in turn burned Democrats. You know, people see him as a deeply untrustworthy person right now. And I think that if he were to play this right he could potentially have a moment where he's, he could unify this Congress for the rest of this Congress. But as much as this next election is a referendum on the executive branch in the White House, it's also a referendum on Congress and who we elect to Congress. We need to focus on electing serious people. And right now we don't have serious people in that body. Yeah. I mean, you're smiling. Do you? Is that? <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I mean, the reality is this. Democrats are probably going to go with the enemy that they know, which is Kevin McCarthy. I think ultimately this is going to come to a vote where some Democrats vote with most Republicans to table it and move on, meaning they just kind of bypass any kind of emotion to vacate vote. Because the reality is you can't say that you want an open floor process. You want a full appropriations process. You want an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. But we're also going to potentially shut down the government and go through multiple rounds to elect a speaker. It is so unserious. It's about Jake Tapper said it well, Fox News clicks, getting on TV, and self-aggrandizing. Just run the government. Well, it's also like the worst job on planet Earth right now <laughs> if you have 45 days before your next fight. Well, it's Farrah Griffin, Cassidy Hutchinson. Thank you for coming in. Your first interview on The Source since your book came out. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Caitlin. Up ahead, a huge relief is being felt. You heard this from the congressman. He mentioned this earlier. That search for the nine-year-old girl who went missing on a camping trip. Charlotte Senna has been found alive and safe tonight. The suspect accused of abducting her is now in custody. A lot of questions still remain, though, including how investigators found her. We'll give you the details next. Tonight, we have just learned that a ransom note with fingerprints is what eventually led police to a suspect and a missing nine-year-old girl. Charlotte Senna is now safe and back with her family after she went missing on Saturday night while riding her bike alone during a camping trip with her family in New York's Murrow Lake State Park. It's just north of Albany. Joining me tonight is CNN correspondent Brian Todd, who is tracking this story. Brian, obviously that's the big question of how they got to this, how they found him. What have you learned tonight? Well, Caitlin, the Albany Times Union newspaper, citing multiple law enforcement sources, reports the suspect who was arrested allegedly left a note at the home of the young girl's parents, possibly demanding some kind of ransom in connection with her disappearance. The Times Union is also reporting from state police sources that the investigation was focused on whether her abduction may have been the result of someone deliberately targeting the girl or her family. CNN did get additional detail on the ransom note a short time ago from New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who said the suspect's Fingerprints were found on the note. 
there was a ransom note, and that is how it was instrumental in leading us directly to the suspect. The, there's also his fingerprint was, uh, sorry, was already ahead. in the database. His his fingerprint was already available to law enforcement. Can you say what kind of a database his fingerprint was in? Uh, state police uh, and uh, database, I believe. Was that? Uh, do, do you know what prior crimes he let had me get, committed? Let me, no, let me get confirmation because we're still running down, and this is still fairly new information. Governor Hochul also said that investigators tracked cell phone data from phones that were in or near the park when Charlotte Senna disappeared, and that they tracked all the people who had bought tickets to the park over the weekend. Caitlin? So where exactly did they find her? Well, Caitlin, according to the New York State Police, multiple residents where the individual is known to have resided were searched. One of those residents was then surrounded by law enforcement tactical teams. At about 6.32 p.m., police located a Charlotte safe uh, at that residence. The suspect was taken into custody. Shortly thereafter, Charlotte was in the arms of her parents at a hospital and is being transported so she can be checked out. But she is apparently in good health tonight. And we are just so grateful to hear that. I know our parents are as well. Brian Todd, thank you for tracking this. Keep us updated. Sure, thanks. Up next, an urgent new warning from Tom Hanks tonight. Or is it from Tom Hanks? Stick around, we'll explain what we mean. Tom Hanks tonight telling his fans to beware. An urgent message from the Forrest Gump star over AI-generated content that uses his likeness to sell what he calls some dental plan. He posted this warning on his Instagram saying he has nothing to do with this advertisement. And I should note, CNN has not independently verified the ad, but you see these all the time, these deep fakes, these artificial intelligence scams all over your social media feeds from things ranging from politics to pop culture. At the same time, we are hearing from Robin Williams' daughter, Zelda, who is also speaking out against these recreations of her father. She says unauthorized use of his voice to create new content is personally disturbing to her. And she added this quote, saying these replications are at their worst, a horrendous Frankensteinian monster cobbled together from the worst bits of everything that the industry is. Quite a blunt warning there, of course, and big questions about the future of that. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining us for this very busy breaking news hour. Seen in primetime with Abby Phillip is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.